And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and Red Bull won again in Australia with Max Verstappen, but this time it was far from straightforward with two red flags, incidents aplenty, and some late controversy. But why was Mercedes suddenly in the hunt? And has F1 got a little too restart happy? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and many, many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, welcome to you, Scott Mitchell-Malm, first, now proven to be F1's greatest prophet. <laughs> um, I think I have a, an idea of uh, what you're referring to here, but maybe you can refresh my memory. Well, I seem to remember several times, in fact, you anticipating that the Alpine drivers would be the first to come together this year as teammates and... So it's proved in real terms. Obviously, the Aston Martins had a little contact in Bahrain, but in terms of a big collision, both cars out, it was Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly. So well done. Uh, thank you. Um, obviously, this this was exactly as I predicted it as well. I, th- I thought it would be a completely um, innocuous uh, coming together with dramatic consequences um, rather than a little bit of pointless belligerence between uh, one driver or the other. Now, obviously, I uh, could never have foreseen it happening in circumstances such as this um, one car going off rejoining and then a clumsy collision that both drivers have apparently taken a bit of responsibility for and no action's been taken but just an absolute disaster for their team that that was the bit that was always going to be the case regardless of how it happened when these two collided it was not going to be pretty for Alpine and so it has proved and you Mark Hughes what have you predicted accurately recently um I don't know I, I predicted that I'd turn up and see the race and play out and that. So yeah, everything's everything is good here. You that would be the most just like most un- underwhelming profit in existence if you kept it if you kept it that low all the time. Yeah, but you keep the bar low. It's easy to hit, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, Mark, let's get on with the big talking point of the race, which was something that was very popular as a topic, both among those watching and the drivers. We've had a question or six from the Race Members Club about this, and Oscar Robledo is uh, totemic among them, who says, can the reasons for restarting the race twice with less than three laps to go be explained? In years gone by, the race would have been declared if an incident had happened that late into the race. Yeah, I mean, this is all from the imperative to try, if at all possible, to uh, get the race finishing um, under racing conditions and not to um, go out like a bit of a damn squid behind a safety car. And this is what has led the controversy back in Abu Dhabi 21, most controversially. Um, it happened in Monza last year, and it's happened here this this time. And it just just the timing of a late incident can just put it on the cusp when you're absolutely determined to try and get it uh, to end under racing conditions um, that yeah you, you're, you're sort of asking for trouble because you're recompressing the field you're giving everybody a you know a one-shot chance at really improving their position or defending the position and you're reintroducing the most hazardous part of the race which is the always on the the, the first few corners of of the, of the, the race and uh yeah, it's it's just how it plays out. I mean, it, it made un, until the, uh, the the final red flag, which ensured there wasn't enough laps left to actually uh, go live for the with the race that to follow the safety car. Until that happened, that final standing start, it, it did create 
huge excitement and tension and, you know, a great deal of jeopardy. And uh, I think you know, the, that, that part of it really worked. But it, the, the other side of the same coin is, is uh, what we saw and uh, the way that it ended. It's, you, 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 you're just sort of, you, you're inviting that sort of, you know, that, 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 that level of jeopardy and um, the possibility of things going wrong. Um, but by being absolutely determined to uh, finish under racing conditions, it's, it's kind of like the F one equivalent of that. What's the NASCAR expression? It's like cautions breed cautions, isn't it? Yeah. In in US racing, NASCAR, IndyCar, whatever it is you're watching, that that's kind of how it is. And I almost wonder. I asked a couple of people this this evening, almost if we we end up in a bit of a contradiction, almost or paradox, or however you want to phrase it, because you throw these red flags in the interest of safety, because there's to breed to to clear or gravel to clear and you can't do that with marshals on track it's completely legitimate but that thing you've done in the interest of safety then creates a situation that is inherently dangerous and much more dangerous than any other moment of, of a grand prix just ask uh, pierre gasly and esban ocon who ended up um, throwing their cars quite aggressively into concrete walls at one of those restarts so it I, I do feel that we do have a slightly, at least a slightly awkward contradiction here with this pursuit of the show. Yeah, well, it becomes very, very difficult. There are certain parameters that are in the regs, aren't there? Because there's the three-hour race span. So if there's time to finish the race, you do have to finish it, which is why you get these late restarts and also why they did that roll-around lap at the end as well. So they completed the full race distance because you have to do that in the time if the time is available so there is a, a kind of regulatory corner that they're boxed into but of course the difficulty with getting the tires up to temperature and everything the brakes is later in the day as well varying tire condition meant that it is a bit of a recipe for those sorts of things but as i said there's several other questions related to this scott ben johnson says the first two red flags felt a bit soft considering safety car periods are designed to compress the field to allow debris to be cleared the first red flag removed any strategic element from the race do you feel the entertainment influence of standing restarts are making f1 control too eager to go for the red flag option? I don't think it's that because um, I think if you were going to make a decision on the in, in the interest of making the race as interesting as possible, you're not throwing that red flag when, when they do in that moment because it took one Mercedes out of the race and it made the other incredibly vulnerable to a much faster Red Bull. So the worst thing you could do, the, 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 the trade-off there of gaining the excitement of that restart it isn't worth what you've sacrificed in terms of the broader race you, you might you might get a short-term win with how much anticipation there will be for the full restart but that will pale into insignificance when you have a one-hour procession thereafter as max just gradually moves clear by five six seven tenths of a second a lap at times so so i, I don't think it's anything to do with that i think the simple explanation is effectively that soft as it may be I, I agree that it is a little bit soft i think it is just an increasing amount of um caution not quite paranoia but just being ultra careful i think that has crept into the decision making process on this so for example with uh with with, with albon there was um there, there might have been a little bit of debris to pick up from inside the gravel trap but like with all the gravel that was on track you need to send marshals out to do that and I think the idea that he's getting that there in the question with these um, compressing the field and create the gaps, I think the point is that you can't sweep the track completely clean in one lap, one gap of a lap behind the safety car or maybe even two. And if you're going to have marshals, volunteer workers on track where cars will be going past, why not just eliminate the risk entirely? I, I think that's the logic behind it. And I, I do think it is just pure care that is that is driving that rather than the spectacle um i think the spectacle comes into it later in the race i think it's the desire to avoid a safety car finisher and make sure that there's some racing at the end i think that's when the desire to ensure some racing and the sh and the show or the spectacle whatever word you want to use does genuinely come into it and influence things much as uh, race control will say otherwise which, of course, was a contributing factor, probably the main contributing factor to Abu Dhabi 2021. Mark, a question from Liam Robinson, who asks, what's wrong with ending a race normally under the safety car? The red flags today felt artificial, and it seemed inevitable that the last restart would end in disaster. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in sporting terms, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's also uh, a business, and it's uh, there's, a, there's a drive for 
viewership and following and, and excitement. It's as simple as that. But in sporting terms, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it ending under a safety car if um, if, if the situation um, demands it. The race has got to end at some point. I think that's one of the things that whenever we've we've ended up here having the discussion with drivers or team people about whether they could do something to avoid. Because as I the impression I got is that F1 itself, people within F1 were very unhappy that it did end up being that, that rolling restart run round to the to the checkered flag in, in in a line. I don't think they they were keen on that. But the race does have to end at some point. You can find different mechanisms to try to extend it. This idea of maybe if you have a thing in the rules that means if there is a if there's a red flag with, you know, one percent of the race remaining or X number of laps remaining, that you add a lap on to ensure and then if teams know that that's a possibility they will make sure they have enough fuel or they won't use that much fuel but then you could then just keep extending that if there's a red flag on the new final lap can you extend that a lap, lap further and a lap further you like, you can't keep doing that there has to be a cutoff at some point well they had timeless test matches in cricket so uh, perhaps you could just have a timeless Grand Prix. There was one test match in Australia. It ended because the England team had to get on a boat and go home. But uh, anyway, I don't think travel bookings will uh, will be allowed to dictate the end of races. But it, it does have to be regulatory, though, doesn't it? That's, that's the thing for me that's important, in that if you want to have racing finishes, if there's a late red flag, I'd much rather there was a, if there is a red flag within X percent, or rather if there is a safety car situation within the last X percent of the race, then it automatically becomes a red flag. Then everyone knows where they stand. You can have a debate about it, do it properly. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. And then if you get the finish in, great. If you don't, so be it. You end under the safety car. That is how it is. There was a point today, actually, where I thought we might not even get the cars back out on track and they would do a uh, F uh, free practice style session will not be restarted but i thought that would be uh that would be a particularly limp way to end a grand prix yeah i think they have to finish the race if there's still time on the clock and it lets them do the photos as well i think that's probably part of it but uh, anyway yeah i mean in answer to the question there's nothing wrong with one finishing under the safety car ultimately i think that will happen sometimes and there should be a willingness to do it but if you want to go for entertainment do it properly of course the other thing scott was there was this big debate about whether the restart order was correct. And when I say restart order, I mean that final restart when they did that single roll around. So that was effectively what decided the race result. Haas did a protest. So can you explain how that all played out? Uh, yeah, I'll try and do it as quickly as I can. Uh, basically, um, Haas wasn't happy with the fact that they went back to the order for the final standing restart for the final run round to the chequered flag because they feel that it should have been set by using the the safety car two line, which is just before turn one here at Melbourne. Um, and if they'd done that, then Nico Hulkenberg, who had uh, beaten Lando Norris down towards turn one and got ahead just before that line, would therefore have gained an extra position, should have been a place higher at the, at the restart. And yeah, the restart, there was no racing. So therefore he would have finished one place higher. And a few other drivers stood to benefit from that as well, if that's how it was interpreted. Sergio Perez, being one, Yuki Tsunoda another. And the, the 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 argument for that from Haas is because that's exactly how the um uh that that's the way it was referenced last year at the British Grand Prix, um, when the FIA, I believe, made reference to the safety car two line not being reached by all drivers by the time there was a red flag, and therefore they had to restart at in the order that the original start was held in but Haas's argument was that every car did make the the safety car two line here so it should have been used basically there's there's discretionary power there they the FIA can use the SC2 line if they want to or not here they I believe the reason for not doing that was that they felt that you can game the system at this track so you could basically pile into turn one no intention of making the corner and that maybe wasn't quite the case in this race but there were a couple of cars that didn't make turn one they went off cold tires cold brakes etc and it wouldn't be fair basically to take um take that as a reference to to reset the grid if it if it can be gained gamed so it was just it the fairest option according to race control was just to go back to the original starting order well mark let's actually talk a little bit about what happened on track during that late restart phase the lap 57 restart there was all sorts of problems Carlos Sainz he was furious about the five second penalty he got for hitting Alonso which dropped him from fourth to 12th after the safety car finish even Alonso thought that was harsh but was it I think it was because it was effectively a first lap and you normally you know there's a lot of leeway given 
with incidents on the first lap. It's very, very easy on cold brakes and compressed field to, to accidentally snag a car. And the other, the other point, of course, is that it was um, a penalty for a, a, a section of the race that, uh, in hindsight, didn't you know didn't uh, count. So um, he got penalised for a, for something that happened in a, a part of the race that, uh, that didn't count. But that that that's more of a just a philosophical problem, really. I I, I do think it was harsh because it was just a a typical first lap, slight misjudgment, and it had consequences. That's all. Yeah, that absolutely happens, and you can understand why science was furious as it relegated him from fourth to twelfth. So that was a, a pretty big penalty. But yeah, you can you can get why perhaps they applied it, but they often don't do that for the start as well. So it's a little bit uh, yeah mixed messaging. But there was all sorts of other chaos going on, and obviously the lap certainly did count for the two Alpines. They they did um, they did say that they uh, considered the usual leniency that would be applied for for first lap incidents with signs, but felt basically that he was so in the wrong that it wasn't relevant, which I thought was uh, quite an interesting interpretation. But yeah, obviously the the Alpines came off. Um, uh, <laughs> a lot worse and no further action was taken there that that felt a little bit like your teammates um you can deal with this internally you don't need us to 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 throw a penalty your way for Pierre Gasly obviously avoids a a race ban by not being deemed uh, responsible for that incident where I, I actually thought he was more responsible than the the knock on I don't like it I don't think we necessarily need to go into exactly apportioning blame or anything but I just think as the car that was rejoining because Gasly had gone off at, at turn one, and I think Sonoda had just nipped past, or someone had nipped past on the inside. So it, he he knew, you know, he was down on momentum that a car had just come past. There, I think there should have just been a bit of greater awareness that even if he couldn't see one, there could have been a car sneaking past on the inside. And Team Boss Otmar Zaf now have tried to let him off and just be like, oh, well, there was a car, there was a car on the left, so you know if he'd gone any direction, he would have hit someone. And it's like the op- the alternative is you know just to sort of hold your line a little bit. The counter argument, I guess, is that Ocon maybe shouldn't have been showing his nose on his teammate in that situation exactly there, but I don't know that it felt it felt more clumsy from Gasly than than Ocon. But in the end, I guess if Alpine writes it off as a racing incident, we can call them both idiots. I think it's pragmatic for them to do that and for the stewards to apply the teammate rule. I can't really see what else Ocon could have done. As you said, he had to keep his foot in, otherwise he'd have risked losing a load of other positions. So I think it's just one of those sort of situational awareness ones for Gasly. But unlucky for him because he was on for a really, really good result until that moment. Although obviously the off was, uh, he was one of many who was caught out under breaking for that first corner. What was your favourite bit of uh, restart carnage there? Because there were lots of... um individual incidents going on it was one of those where every time you watch the replay back you saw something else i quite enjoy logan Sargent drop kicking nick de Vries. i think that was my favorite one which was accidental when you saw when you saw the replay you just like what's gonna happen here oh my god i really enjoyed the fact as well that after de Vries had been booted out of the race his race engineer came over the radio and said something like yeah you got hit and de Vries didn't say anything <laughs> but you could imagine he was thinking yeah I know, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, that that was uh, just some of that incidental carnage in the background. But you had Lance Stroll off as well in turn three, and just loads going on in that one. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Direct TV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Call one eight hundred Direct TV. Terms or restrictions apply. Well, now we've dealt with the end of the race, we can get on with the earlier part of it. So, Mark, the how the race was won question. I guess we should really talk about this scenario that was playing out, but actually then got stymied early on when you had Russell leading from Hamilton with Verstappen third. In fact, Christopher Parrott from the Race Members Club has got the ideal question for this. He says, was Russell on a winning strategy before the first red flag, assuming he could fend off the Red Bull? He was on a very good strategy, on the best strategy that um, he could have been given in that situation, um, given that there was a the safety car had happened, but the red flag hadn't yet happened. Um, it had bought him a lot of time, 10 seconds over um, Verstappen and Hamilton. 
um, that you'd assume would have ensured he would have beaten Hamilton if he hadn't have also had the blown up engine. <laughs> so it really wasn't his day. Whether he would have been on a winning strategy, I, I don't think so, because I think even if he gained 10 seconds on Verstappen on the, on a, the one pit stop, I think Verstappen easily had the pace to make that up and still pass and and, and probably win by a, a comfortable margin. So, no, I think it, on raw performance, it, it, it was would have been the best strategy, but on raw performance, it still wouldn't have been enough. Yeah, strategy doesn't make your car any faster, ultimately, no matter how uh, good it is. Scott, obviously at the start, there was a brief flash of 2021 with that turn three aggro between Hamilton and Verstappen. Verstappen complained over the radio about Hamilton pushing him wide. Was there anything to that? Um, Not sure, really. I mean, Max was uh, adamant that that was a case of the racing rules that were introduced last year not really being followed. He felt that as he'd got ahead at the apex, he was entitled to be given room uh, on on the exit and I think he is right um the the weird thing about those racing guidelines is if you um if you have your front wheels ahead by even like an inch at the apex you can basically do whatever you want to the guy on the outside but if you don't get ahead you have to leave them a, a car's width but if you if you watch Lewis doesn't totally run him out to 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 the outside and in fact I think Lewis even had a like a little correction where he was trying trying to hold the, the the car in line a little bit. I mean, don't get me wrong, Lewis didn't make it easy for him, but it was the honestly, I I genuinely can't remember the last time we saw Lewis be the one that actually sent the move on Max who was being a bit too conservative into a corner. So, I I I say this a lot on the podcast. I I I'm now in April 2023. I'm still not comfortable watching these two race one another because I'm just expecting the worst, but they showed that it can be done. And the two drivers in the press conference afterwards were fairly keen to kind of dampen it down. Verstappen said, yeah, it was all right. I was a little bit conservative, as you suggested. Hamilton said, well, he gave me room and I didn't force him completely off. So it was all fine. I think it was one of those all's well, ends well type incidents with both drivers kind of happy with their race results. So it didn't erupt into anything bigger. But it was also very minor. It's kind of pretty much what you'd expect on the first lap of a Grand Prix in that kind of corner. Mark, inevitably, Mercedes qualifying second and third, running one, two and Hamilton finishing second was a pretty big talking point given the way Mercedes have started the season. So Christopher Parrott has a question on that, which is what accounted for Mercedes improved performance in Melbourne and is it a sign of things to come? Um, three things. One is that they have now honed in on the happy place that it likes to be in terms of setup, um, which leads us on to the second point. The happy place that it likes to be is to run it as low as possible. Um, obviously, there are only some tracks that allow you to do that. Uh, this is one of them. It's nice and smooth. So, um, yeah, anything anything smooth is going to help. And Thirdly, Ferrari completely messed their qualifying up and they could probably have qualified third. So, uh, you know, that would have split split the Mercs. I don't think they were going to do Russell's time, but they probably could have beaten Hamilton's time. So, uh, yeah, that, that that's the combination of it. Um, in terms of their um, relatively small deficit to the uh, pole position of Verstappen, I don't think the conditions suited the Red Bull's tyre usage. It it, it tends to be a little bit slow in bringing the front tyres up to temperature, and we had a very cool track and a very smooth track, so the worst possible combination for um, a Red Bull in qualifying. So you saw the most um, favourable set of circumstances for Mercedes and the least favourable for Red Bull, and the gap was still about two and a half tenths. And uh, in the, of course, uh, the, the the running of the race it was um, considerably bigger than that. Yeah, and considering Ferrari underachieved a bit, the Aston Martins were still quick. Alonso obviously couldn't get past him, but I think if it, the track positions were reversed, I think Alonso would have been able to quite happily uh, beat Hamilton. I suspect anyway. But Aston Martin, obviously, continuing that great start to the season, Scott, a, a fantastic statistic for you. Aston Martin now have 65 points. In all of last year, they scored 55 points. So that's quite the uh, the step up for them, isn't it? That's uh, also pretty pretty good for, uh, for a team that at one point with two laps remaining had one car facing the wrong way and then 15 seconds later had another car flying into the gravel trap. That's uh, I don't remember. I don't think a team in history has ever 
managed to come back from that scenario with two laps remaining to finish third and where was Lance? Fifth? Or fourth? Third and fourth. He was fourth so, after the science penalty. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hell of a, that's an incredible recovery, isn't it? Yeah, well, they'll be massively, massively relieved because they want to make hay and score those points to ensure that they're completely leaving the midfield behind just in case anyone takes a giant leap forward. And yeah, they've just absolutely harvested the points here. So very positive for Aston. I mean, it's, if, if you think of where we were about 12 months ago when we were doing the 2022 Australian Grand Prix podcast discussing Aston Martin and this segment that they had on this, so the, this corresponding podcast, what well, is just unbelievable. I, I've never seen a, a transformation year on year quite like it. I mean, they, the car was, both cars were in pieces. Um, they'd had, I think, was it, I think it was four crashes over the course of two days across two each on both cars. Um, the car was hopelessly slow and it was also really difficult to drive, hence those crashes. Um, I think it would have been impossible to imagine two things this time 12 months ago. One, that Fernando Alonso would be willing to trade the car that he could easily have been on the first couple of rows of the grid in 2022 with for that Aston Martin team. And two, that that Aston Martin team would be this much more competitive. I mean, even if you look at the progress they made through last year, you'd never have in a million years bet on this. So to start the year, three consecutive third places is utterly incredible. But I am looking forward to seeing, I, I, sort of, I tweeted this after the race, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how Alonso manufactures a ridiculous podium finish next time because they're getting more ridiculous. In Jeddah, he had one, lost it, then got it back. And here... He had one, got punted into a spin that dropped into 11th and still managed to finish third. What the hell is he going to do in Baku? <laughs> and of course, in Bahrain, his teammate drove into him on the first lap and clouted him. So <laughs> yeah, it's certainly been uh, action-packed. Things are never boring when Fernando Alonso's around. But the really interesting thing is, it's another podium on merit. And if he keeps hanging around there and he's there second, third, fourth, every weekend. Eventually, he is going to win one, finally, after these 10 years. And I think that's the thing that this season most needs to produce. An Alonso win after so long will be fantastic to see. And it's more likely than not to happen. If this performance keeps up, they can't beat Verstappen and Red Bull in a straight fight. But there will be times when things don't quite go as planned for Red Bull. One thing that the uh, chat about the Alonso podiums made me think of, I've already um, I already quizzed Mark on this earlier in the, the media centre, Ed. So um, this one goes to you. How we, uh, let's how can I phrase this best? How many times have we seen this podium before? That's a good question. Uh, we can't have these seen three drivers. Is this the first time? This is the second. Oh, can was you... it Qatar? Yes, there you go. See straight away. Yeah, the only time in living memory that Alonso's been on the podium before this season. So therefore, the only opportunity it could possibly have been. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's quite something, and hopefully, we'll see. Plenty more of those three battling at the front as well. It's it's really been great to see a, well, not really revitalised Alonso, but an Alonso who's just enjoying being a factor at the front on a consistent basis. Mark, let's talk about Ferrari. Fourth best in qualifying. Science has been complaining about a peaky car and the ceiling on the concept that's lower than that of the Red Bull. So what's going wrong? The, I think both Mercedes and Ferrari have both recognised that their concepts, as you say, have got a... a a low ceiling and they've found it, uh, whereas the Red Bull concept is um, is the one that everybody's converging towards, and I suspect probably that both Ferrari and Mercedes will converge towards it as well. So that's the the fundamental thing. Um, in terms of the how their weekend went, they, they, as we talked about, they, they had a very messy Q3 in particular. Signs got in Leclerc's way. There didn't seem to be good communication between the team in coordinating, you know, how it was going to work. Um, and, yeah, Leclerc didn't feel that he uh, performed particularly well. It, it, yeah, it was just, it was messy. Yeah, the, cars, the car wasn't great. We'd, um, Scott and I watched out on uh, trackside. It was, it takes a little bit too long to load up through the fast corners. If you compare it to, say, an Aston Martin, um, it better than the Mercedes on the slow corners but you know it, it it's it's about the same over a lap it just when you're comparing it to the to the Red Bull and but even to the Aston it just, it just looks a mediocre car and you know it, it's all rel- everything's relative isn't it to the to, to what whatever's setting the standard 
it's not a disastrously bad car, but it's it just relative to the competition. It's the, the fundamental problem is the concept. Yes, it, it seems to be. Then that, that's that's where they've ended up, and it worked. You know, it, for the first iteration last year of, of these new regulations, it was very effective. Um, but it seems to have just sort of stagnated, and uh, the Red Bull have sort of taken another step, it, it developed it further, and the Aston Martin seems to have taken the the Red Bull route and, and got to about where Red Bull were at last year. And unfortunately, I think the Ferrari is the weakest race team of the top four. And you look at how close it is with Aston Martin and Mercedes on performance. I'm, I'm back in Aston Martin and Mercedes to do a better job with that car in terms of probably from an engineering point of view with the setup for the weekend, the choices that they make. We were, Ed, I don't know if you've got any more insight into this from base, but we were absolutely baffled when we saw Leclerc sliding around on a set of softs when the rain came down in FP2. And he even even he seemed absolutely perplexed as to why they were wasting a set of tyres. There was a lot of confusion going on in that <laughs> whole team. I'd, I'd argue that qualifying was probably the one that was emblematic of that for, for Leclerc yeah. because... They feared rain. Obviously, obviously, they were very, very paranoid about rain arriving after having done that. So they didn't do the prep lap on his last run. So he ended up just doing outlap push on the last Q3 run. But they'd failed to factor in that Science was ahead of him on track. Science did the did the prep lap. So Science was slow in front of him, which was perfectly fine. He was doing the program they were doing. And they tried to give Science that late call to give Leclerc a toe. And then there was, they didn't give great information to Science about where Leclerc was as well, especially as Science had already said it was a bit tricky to do it, particularly when he's told really late to, to do that. And then Leclerc ends up with Science parked in front of him in turns three and four. And he did a really sarcastic message when he got back uh, just before he got out of the car at the end of qualifying and said, yeah, thanks thanks to Carlos for the tow. Really helpful to have that in turn three and four, which was sort of, it sounded positive, but it was very clear what he was saying. So it was just all, all a little bit of a mess for Ferrari. And there was all sorts of stuff like, he was asked about tyre choice and it's a point where he goes, well, I'm a bit confused. What do you mean? Because it was just normal. You just go onto a new set of softs. I think they meant, do you want to use the same tyres or something? But they didn't ask him the question clearly. So there's a lot of comms issues there still. Uh, uh, hey, at least look, they're learning. They didn't send him out on wets when the track was dry. So they're getting there. Well, it's all a, a bit of an improvement. But what did you make, Mark, of Leclerc's off in the first lap of the race? Obviously, he qualified seventh, had some work to do, ended up in the gravel. Yeah, I thought it was optimistic. He tried for a late lunge down the outside of Stroll. Stroll found himself in quite a similar situation to that he found in lap one in Bahrain in that he had Alonso just in front of him and a car on the outside trying to outbreak him. And then Leclerc turned in. He had to turn in at some point because he committed himself there. And um, yeah, as the outside car, you're the more vulnerable one. And um, yeah, he turned in and they touched and that was him in the gravel and day over. It's another one of those ones that's not an illegal manoeuvre or anything by Leclerc, but it's just like, is this your best percentage chance of making it work? Because it was just one of those situations where there was always a danger that would happen. And yeah, you can't blame Stroll for hit. He was just there and if he's going to hit one car, he's going to make sure it's not his teammate, isn't it? And I think he was just stuck in the middle, as you as you said. But not great for Leclerc to end up with so few points so early in the season, is it, Scott? No, he described it as his... Um just the worst ever start and obviously in Ferrari context it is but he um he needs to get a lot of, he needs to get quite a few points on on the board in Baku because he's actually in danger I think if he finishes ninth or tenth or lower obviously in, in Baku he'll come away from that race with as many or fewer points than he did after four races with Sauber in 2018 so it could it could legitimately be his worst ever start to a season if he doesn't do um obviously a, a, have a normal weekend in Baku, I mean, just on the specific incident, he basically said that obviously no blame can be put on Stroll for that. He tried to palm it off as a bit of a, I didn't actually try to overtake him. I was just kind of there and Stroll was a bit conservative. So I sort of went to the outside and then he kind of just sort of drove into the Aston Martin almost by accident. So it was just a uncharacteristically clumsy and came after he was also quite critical of his driving in, in qualifying. He didn't feel that he'd done a particularly clean job there either. Yeah, he was a little bit ragged in qualifying. I think it it had all the air of, 
I've not qualified as well as I should have done and I want to try and make up those positions, so I'll take a few risks. If it comes off, great. If it doesn't, you can be in the gravel. That's just the way it works. Should we talk about Checo Perez, Scott? Because he had a a weird weekend, came through to finish fifth from the pits, which is pretty good, especially seeing as the strategy with that first red flag didn't exactly go for him. So what actually went on with him? Because there seems to be some disagreements or some disconnect between team and driver about exactly what the problem was or was not. Well, there's no, I still don't think there's really a, like a concrete answer or particularly convincing one, shall we say. I mean, one would surmise from the outside that changing that um, brake friction material worked, worked wonders over in, in, in Park Ferme because he was, he was all at sea on, on Saturday. I think he had, went, had five or six off-track moments across FP3 and qualifying. It was a disaster. Every time he tried to use the brakes, um, it just seemed to be, causing himself more and more dramas and he was obviously furious in qualifying because adamant that there was an issue that hadn't been solved and then it sort of softened a little bit and the, there were some murmurs that the team weren't 100% convinced that there was a car issue but there were these changes in Park Ferme and I didn't see any outward sign of of him properly struggling um, in, in the race so either the change works and that was the problem. It was something to do with the pads that he had on, on, on Saturday or Checo just tweaked his driving slightly and all the, and the track got a bit grippier and it was a bit easier to manage because he wasn't on the limit pushing for one lap in qualifying, but it was a, a strange one that ultimately set him up for a damage limitation job, which in the circumstances he did okay with, but he's lost too far too much ground in, in, in this than, you think this was the same person on Thursday talking so bullishly about fighting for the championship and and, and all of that. And um, a few days later, he's obviously counting the costs of, of quite a lot of drop points. Yeah, I think it's no great surprise that he can't match that just level of consistency at his best. He has weekends like Saudi, but yeah, it, it's just not consistently repeatable because Verstappen's just so good. I did wonder, Mark, especially when Verstappen had his little moment when he grabbed the fronts and ran off at at turn 13, whether it's just the case of the way Red Bull was running the car was a little bit tricky. Verstappen was quite good at dealing with it and Perez was just struggling a bit more. So that that's kind of where you see a driver sees there's a problem that maybe his teammate is managing quite well and and work, sort of working around. So it's not a problem. And the team thinks, well, what's going on there? It's, it's working as we want it to. Yeah, I think there's something in that. I think the, um, we touched on earlier on, the, the, uh, the circumstances in qualifying and in the the the, the cool conditions of um, Friday practice as well, they they presented a certain difficulty with the Red Bull. The Red Bull is a car that um, it doesn't um, dive and pitch in the way that other cars do uh, because of the, that's the way they've worked the suspension in order to get the aero platform that they want. And I think the downside of that is is what we touched on before, the, the reluctance, reluctance to get the front tyres up to temperature quickly. And so if you come to a, a, a track that's cooler than expected and um, the tyre compound is not particularly aggressive, it's, it's, you know, relative to the track, it wasn't a particularly soft compound that we're running, um, yeah, that that'll bring out uh, any any latent um, brake locking tendencies. Um, f- on top of that, on the Friday they had and it sort of the engine was running on a little bit after after you've lifted fully off. So sometimes the throttle was still partly on as you turned in. That wouldn't have helped either. All those things that yeah, you, 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 if you're aware of them and you're, you're on top of your game. You can probably drive around without the outside world noticing, and the other guy might just be like, you know, flailing all at sea with them. And there might be an element of that, but there didn't seem to be any concrete. Yes, we've definitely found something. It's this. Um, well, there wasn't. It's, it, it may later emerge that there was something. We we don't know yet, but so far, no. It, so far, it's 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 pointing in Checo's direction. One driver we should mention who would have been right up there in the results, Scott, is Alex Albon, who had an absolutely brilliant weekend, was driving superbly, was on for a great result until just in that instant it turned from triumph to disaster. Yeah, very unusual Albon at Williams mistake. Um, in fact, I know this uh, that, that corner was revised last year, but 
the kind the kind of shunt that's just very rare to see. Uh, yeah, I, I suspect because you, you can only see from the onboard, but the previous corner on the left hand to turn five, it looks like he is very, very close to the wall in the exit. I suspect he may have just grazed it with the left rear and so got a slow puncture, which then he then loads up through turn six. His his theory is that um, he had taken a bit too much speed through the previous corner and that combined with running on the exit curb more aggressively than before spiked the outside rear tyre temp mm-hmm. and it just gave it just gave up a bit of grip as he chucked it in because mm-hmm. obviously you, you load that left the outside rear up rear quite a lot into that right hander so it, it, it was he, that he was definitely out he was definitely a long way out on the exit of five yeah so it did seem to be that that, uh, that seems to be cause and then you see yeah. the effect so um as unfortunate it was obviously a misjudgment and a, a, a tiny mistake really on his part with huge consequences and it undid the weekend's work obviously i mean Sometimes drivers, when they retire from a Grand Prix, they come over to the mix zone and speak to us pretty quickly afterwards. Um, sometimes they take a bit of time to gather their thoughts. Uh, Album was in the latter camp, so we saw him probably about an hour, an hour and a half. I would, I would have roughly guessed um, after his his error, but he he still wasn't. He, he'd calm. He was calm, but he uh, he wasn't particularly looking on the bright bright side. He he said he was angry with himself and bluntly just felt like he'd let the team down because obviously a, a big result went begging. Just goes to show, isn't it, the difference between triumph and disaster can be so, so very, very tiny. And it's just that one instant it goes. But I'm sure there's going to be some big results for Albon and Williams in the rest of the year. He was exceptionally good in qualifying, I have to say. Really, really impressed with everything he'd done. Uh, Let's now talk about McLaren, Mark. First good day of 2023, London Norris 6, Oscar Piastri 8. Is this some step change in performance, do you think, or just similar-ish performance level, but with things going well for them? Yeah, that, the the latter. The performance level is about the same. They're on the sort of cusp Q2, Q3, low Q3, upper Q2. Um, probably a little bit lower here than they were in Jeddah, um, Bahrain, but in the same sort of bracket. Um, but they had, yeah, they had a nice, more straightforward weekend. Um, I thought um, Oscar... Drove a particularly well-controlled, very neat race. Um, there was also a little. We got a little, um, little insight into his um, talent on uh, the, the the inters phase in Friday, uh, Friday practice late on, and there were a few cars out there running quite seriously on on inters, uh, including Stroll's Aston Martin. And um, he was he was consistently the quickest. Now the, the the real quick cars went out there to 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 really give perspective on it. But he was consistently the quickest every time he went round. Um, and Albon was very quick then in that phase as well. So yeah, I think um, yeah, he's 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 done a he's done a very nice, neat, tidy job and got points at his home Grand Prix, which is nice. Um, yeah, it really couldn't, the, the, given the car that they have at the moment, I don't think they could have hoped for a, a better weekend. It felt like a little bit of um, karma maybe for the atrociously unfortunate first lap that they had in Jeddah, where you can kind of shrug off Piastri damaging his front wing in contact with, I think it was Gasly, um, because that's kind of just what happened. So that's not particularly unfortunate. What was particularly unfortunate was then that piece of front wing uh, jumping off the car and then damaging the, the other McLaren's front wing and just killing a, a, the, any chance they had of points there and obviously they had the double DNF in Bahrain so yeah after the way that this season started I don't think anyone would really begrudge McLaren a bit of fortune today Norris was always in contention for points in, in this race from from very early on and it, they obviously got elevated to a much better result but ultimately they kept out of trouble they had reasonable enough pace in in the midfield and after the start of the season they've had I think we can let them have it yeah and I think very good for Piastri to get that result as we said on our preview podcast for the Australian Grand Prix there'll be some good results for him around the corner I think there's going to be a lot better for him than eighth but nice to get off the mark another driver Scott who got off the mark was Nico Hulkenberg for the year seventh place so has he proved Haas utterly correct in their driver lineup decision I think he, I think he did that in the opening weekend. Um, we talked about it that he's um, he's proven that they, when Kevin Magnussen was going missing a little bit at the start of the year, and arguably still was this weekend, miles off in qualifying after losing 
a ch massive chunk of time in the high speed bits in the final sector, just having to have so many confidence lifts and dabs of the brake, whereas Hulkenberg doesn't. You know, Magnus is nowhere near him over one lap when when you have the car right on the edge. And then in the race, obviously, while Hulkenberg was racing brilliantly inside the points, Magnussen was a frustrated midfield runner, didn't quite go his way. And then sort of running in clear air, he lost it and ended his race completely on his own by slapping the the, the, the wall in the, in the way that he did. Um, Magnussen's going through a run at the moment where he clearly can't get the most out of that car. Hulkenberg can. That's exactly why... Steiner brought him in for Haas. They wanted to make sure that they had a real benchmark with a you know a real top midfield driver in that car. And that days like today are exactly what you get in return for signing a driver like that. This has been coming since the start of the season. I'm not surprised at all that Hulkenberg has now three races in already delivered a pretty big result for that team. And a quick mention, Mark, for Yuki Tsunoda, who got his first points of the season in 10th. He seems to have spent the whole year kind of grimly trying to hang on to a position on the edge or on the periphery of the points in a car that's not very interested in being there. So tough race for him, but nice reward for him because he's actually had a pretty good start to the season. Yes, indeed. And um, I think I'm right in saying he didn't have the latest floor on the car, the, the big update that they brought here, which is worth a good two or three tenths. Probably best not to drag it through the gravel as he did. That's yeah, the, the, exactly the one that. downside. It, it was self his own fault he didn't have it, but um, given that he didn't have it, he then did a good job. <laughs> um, I think he's he's doing a very, very solid job so far this year. Yeah, and it's nice there to be a reward there. Obviously, Nick DeVries having a, a tough time <laughs> ending up being booted into the gravel at the end, as we mentioned. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, as always, we'll finish off with some rapid fire questions from the Race Members Club. We'll start off with some, again, related to the red flag and regulations, because that's been such a big talking point. Scott, one for you from Thomas Knight. How long will it take for the being able to make your compulsory tyre change under a red flag rule to be stopped? It feels like a scenario IndyCar still deals with better. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know, because I guess it. I guess it's going to be there until... F1 finds a way to deal with tyre allocations and mandatory compound uses, usage and, and, and whatnot better because 
Am I right in saying that the reason for it is because obviously a red flag tends, there's a reasonable risk that a red flag is being shown because of debris. And therefore, if you get a puncture, you need to be able to change your tyres. So, I mean, the solution I've always wondered is whether there's a way to be able to be able to guarantee that you can switch to the same compound and therefore, or, or if you have to switch compound or you, you're free to switch the compound, but it doesn't count as your, 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 your pit stop, basically, that would require a bit of regulation tweaking. You, you would have to do it as instead of basically saying you have, because I think the regulations specify that you have to use basically the, the, the two compounds in the race, don't they? They don't. It's not a mat. There's not a mandatory pit stop in the regulations as, as such. It's about the compound use. But if you tweak that regulation so that it so that you know you have to make a pit stop during green flag or safety car running or something like that, and switch compounds. If the regs say that, then does that fix it? I don't know. That probably creates other problems as well. But but I don't like the the, the free tire change. I I. I I think it goes a little bit far beyond the give and take of sometimes it goes in your favour, sometimes it doesn't, That like a safety car has, for example. I think it's become a problem since red flags have proliferated because it's really over the last four seasons or so that we've had so many stoppages in races that this has started to happen. So I think that's the reason why it's become such an issue because if it happens once in a blue moon, it's just one of those things, isn't it? But when it keeps happening, then it becomes a little bit more of a concern. I'm not really sure what the answer to that one is, though. Mark, a question from Oscar Robledo about the start. It says, were the incidents at the restart inevitable given the limited opportunities two laps of racing presents? They're very highly um, likely, aren't they? They, they, That's what we talked about at the beginning, really. The... the the opportunity is there. Yeah, the risk is there, and the the opportunity is there. And you know, these are recent drivers. They're not. Um, they're not accountants. They're not. Um, you know, they're they're not um, meek and mellow in their disposition when they when they've got the helmets on. So yeah, I if, if you do restarts, you're uh, you're increasing the risk of um, incident. Of course, yes. You know, some angry accountants onto us now after you've uh, you've invoked them there. A question from Ranveer Menon, which I'll take, which is, what could possibly be going on at Alfa Romeo with Valtteri Bottas apparently lacking one lap pace? Does he have an explanation for where it seemingly vanished to? Looking at the data traces, he's giving away an abnormal amount in the high-speed corners. Yeah, Bottas didn't have a great weekend. He was a bit baffled by it. They made a load of suspension changes to try and see if they could iron out the problem and improve the pace and... It still wasn't great. He didn't really have any chance in the race, ultimately. That said, Joe is a is a good driver, and I think he's taken a step in his second year, as we wanted him to, in terms of that pace. So I think he's no easy person to uh, to beat, and Joe's been ahead in qualifying twice now in three races. So, yeah, it, things aren't going great for Bottas, but I don't think he's suddenly fallen off a cliff or something. I think it's just one of those ones that it was a bit of a difficult weekend, didn't quite come together, combined with the fact that Joe is now operating at a a very decent level. And Scott, a question for you from Dracker, if I've pronounced that correctly, who says, Christian Horner made some comments over the weekend regarding Daniel Ricciardo's time in the simulator. Do you have any insight into how his pace on the sim compares to that of Perez? Um, when he first went on, very, very poorly. <laughs> um, that's a polite version of what quite a few people have told me now from, from within that setup. Um but I think it has improved uh, considerably since then. He, he's obviously been been there more than once. Um, if you, I, I I suspect people that want to big up Ricardo would suggest that he is now maybe fractionally faster than Perez on the sim, and those that are perhaps more inclined to back Perez for now suggest that he's um, still a little bit quicker than Ricardo on the sim, but. I I mean, I could split the difference and say I reckon that means they're about evenly matched. I suspect the likelihood is that that, that Daniel is doing a very good job um, dry, getting back on in, into the swing of things on the Red Bull sim is probably a little bit more forgiving than having to get into a, a car and uh, unpick the McLaren bad habits that Red Bull feels he's picked up, he had picked up. I, I think that is just a slightly friendlier environment to to do that um, on, on the simulator and he'll be really motivated. And obviously, he's Daniel Ricciardo, so he's a very good driver, and I'm sure he's perfectly capable on, on, on the sim. Whether that would translate into reality, who knows? But I think it's, the, I think it's from what we hear, an encouraging start to the process of rebuilding him. The problem is that 
outside of Red Bull, no one is going to pick Ricardo on the basis of a few suggestions that he's got better on a simulator. The only team that can make a conclusive decision on whether he's worth it in an F1 context again is Red Bull if they decide that Perez doesn't work or maybe they want to try and convince Ricardo to replace De Vries at AlphaTauri next season or, or, or something like that. And even then, I think they wouldn't need to put him in a car, a Pirelli test or something else, just to really validate that progress that they've seen on the sim for real. And a question now from Jack Aitken, Mark, who, as we've previously established, is not that one. He says, I've been fortunate enough to be sitting at turn 11 all weekend and have noticed some of the cars, particularly the Alpha Tauris, backfiring the braking zone. What makes a Formula One car backfire? And is this something the Honda Red Bull engine is more prone to? Uh, yeah, I have noticed that. It, 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 it does um, backfire more. Um, <laughs> it's unburned fuel uh, and it's back pressure and exhaust, which, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no way of knowing without knowing what the, you know, <laughs> How the inlet tracks are and the cylinder heads are, and and what the you know the the velocity of the the, the fuel rate is and things like that. But it it's yeah it's it's, it's essentially that it's 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 just the the fuel that's gone through on its way uh, as you lift off uh, that that's already gone through and it it, it ignites in the exhaust. And a question from Rupert Stevens that I'll take. He says, the Williams is clearly a reasonable improvement on the recent past. Will FX de Maison ever receive a shred of credit for this? Well, yeah, he can have a, he can have some credit for it. Obviously, he was there uh, last year and was overseeing the technical department. They've made a good step on his watch. So, yeah, he can have he can have some credit for that. I think there were wider concerns there that led to his departure. But, yeah, he has played a part in that, as has David Wheater, the outgoing head of Aero. He's got a question from Thomas Knights. He says, are four DRS zones around here too much, given it doesn't give the lead car a chance to pull away? Um, I don't know, because this layout just doesn't really promote close racing. There aren't really stunningly good places to, to, to pass here. And those DRS zones do work in tandem a lot of the time because you see cars get fairly close down towards turn one, but then they lose a chunk of time through turns one and two. It does look like these cars are harder to follow than they were last year with the the improvements or the developments that teams have uh, have have gone for um so i didn't see two like i didn't see like drive-bys down to turn three and for for example obviously that that long run towards the s's there were a couple of drive-bys there but not nothing too dramatic the same down to turn 11 i think it's just when you've got a track like this i think you need the more drs zones to try and keep the cars together because they lose a bit of ground through those fast bits and you don't have big braking zones really to 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 send a lunge down the inside. So I think it kind of works here, but I wouldn't want to see it happen in, in too many places. It, it does feel a bit much. And a question I'll take now from Oscar Robledo again. He says, how costly could the repair be for Alpine? Do you think it could affect their compliance with the cost cap? Well, it's not going to be cheap because it's both cars. Fairly big hit for both. It's impossible to put a clear number on it, but... With two cars having that big a hit, you could easily be in seven figures, I guess, on parts, couldn't you? Creeping creeping past the six figures, certainly in a high six-figure number. I haven't actually done a complete audit of it, but yeah, if you're damaging floors and wings and all that kind of thing, suspension, that's a lot of new components. The one positive thing is Otmar Safnauer did say earlier in the weekend that the gap before Baku gives them time to replenish their spare stock, so that's something they'll be having to work quite hard at at Alpine in order to be uh, to be ready to go, but they won't be looking forward to the impact that take. But in terms of cost cap, every team engineers in a, compl- a certain sort of contingency for accident damage, etc. So that will be no problem. You'd need to have an abnormal number of incidents of that scale for that to be a particular problem. Question now for you, Scott, from Christopher Parrott, who says, what's it about the first sector in Melbourne that lends itself to chaotic starts? Um, it, it, it tightens quite a bit through, through turn one. Um, I guess is 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 one factor, which obviously is, is fairly fast corner as well, but it does get a little bit tight, and then you have quite an aggressive little blast down towards uh, turn three, which is quite a big stop, and you you just that's your chance to get ahead as well because there there aren't that many. It's not an easy track to overtake on. The race is probably not going to have a huge amount going on, so there's that extra emphasis that maybe doesn't exist on some other tracks. The track the start's always the best opportunity, but here it's kind of amplified a little bit 
to so so it's a mix. It's the it's the layout and it's the way it feeds into the way the rest of the Grand Prix is probably going to play out. And the final question for you, Mark, from Hugh Douglas. It says, how much can be read into the surprisingly good performances from McLaren today, given Albert Park's history of sometimes skewing the competitive order? So I know you've tackled that it wasn't a dramatic swing, but what does it tell us about where McLaren is? I don't think they're any any different, really, to how they've been in the previous two races. They just had a good weekend, as we, we touched on. Um, I think we get a much better reading on McLaren when they come up with their... Uh, updated car, which is hopefully still on schedule for Baku. Yeah, well, that's going to be the big point for them, isn't it? The introduction of that new car. And they also said there's going to be a almost a B-spec car, not actually a B-spec car, but a big change a bit later in the season as well. So something to look forward to for McLaren after this modest start. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, Malman, Mark Hughes, for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen, plenty to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, our Formula E podcast, IndyCar, MotoGP as well. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, there may be a big gap in the calendar right now, but stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.